You're listening to Rates and Lanes with Rico Mohammed. This is the show where we improve your knowledge of the freight market, improve your bottom line, and improve the transportation industry as a whole. We're talking Rates and Lanes. Let's move on down the audio road. Good evening, everyone. This is Rico Mohammed coming to you live from Chadburn, North Carolina. I actually was successful chasing down a direct customer, found me a direct shipper with the uh, sweet potatoes up in uh, North Carolina, and I'm pulling my very first load with them tonight. Uh, so that's a little bit of a success story on uh, going out and getting some direct customers. Uh, but we're going to start tonight's show off as we normally do because we don't want to take away from any time. Uh, we have our special ghost, uh, special guest host uh, tonight going to be uh, Mr. Hank Seaton will be joining us. And I also have another surprise. We've got another co-host that's going to be joining us here as well. Mr. Kenny Long will be joining us here in just a few seconds as well. He's going to help me uh, kind of pick the brain of Mr. Seaton on some things. And, of course, your questions are always welcome. If you want to go ahead and jump online right now to make sure that you can get a chance to get your question directly to Mr. Seaton so that you can uh, demystify and clear the lunchroom legal advice and get, actually talk to a real attorney and get solid footing on what you want to do as far as your legal standpoint. So go ahead and press number one right now and get in line to talk to Hank here in just a few seconds. But this week, we're going to start off with the USDA fruit and vegetable truck rate report. This week, we only have two markets that are showing a shortage. Those two markets are Aristotle County, Maine, and eastern North Carolina, right where I am with the sweet potatoes. Um, they're also, I'm only going to go over the other ones that's showing a slight shortage. There are four places with slight shortages. That's Michigan, Minnesota, North Dakota, Nebraska, and New York, upper state New York is showing a slight shortage. Everywhere else is showing either adequate slight surpluses or surpluses on that. Like I tell you, always go and Google the USDA truck and vegetable uh, report, truck rate report. There's a lot of lot more in-depth detail that's on that report that we do not get a chance to cover in-depth here on this podcast, but information is power. They have uh, a lot of rate information on that particular um, report, so check that out. comes out every Wednesday, and without any further ado, let's jump over into the DAT trend lines for this week, February the 8th through the 14th, and... The summary shows that freight availability declined 4.5% and capacity rebounded 10% last week, adding to rate pressures and rate continued to to drift down, with vans and reefers losing $0.01 and flatbeds are off by $0.02 per mile. So let's jump into the U.S. van demand on the spot market for this past week. And we have showing here that van freight availability declined 6.6% last week as capacity increased 10% compared to the previous week to load the truck ratio dropped 15% from 2.5 back down to 2.1 loads per truck. January capacity added 11%. The load to truck ratio averaged 2.8 for vans in January and seasonal decline from a typical high December levels Load availability slipped 16% and capacity added 11% month over month. Let's jump over into the U.S. van rates on the spot market for this previous week. And the national average rate for vans lost another one cent off 
off the line haul portion last week, and the fuel surcharge was unchanged. The total rate slipped to $1.86 per mile, including the fuel. Countering the national trend, outbound rates rose in Buffalo, likely due to the harsh weather conditions. January rates stable versus 2014. The monthly average van rate slipped 14 cents compared to December, including an 8 cent decline in the fuel surcharge compared to January of 2014. The total rate was unchanged as line haul rates rose to offset a 17 cents drop in the fuel surcharge. Quick check around the country coming out of the national uh, spot market for drive vans coming out of Philadelphia averaged $1.75 per mile. Out of Atlanta, Georgia showed an average of $1.94 per mile. Chicago checks in with the high rate average of $2.09 per mile for dry vans. Dallas checks in at $1.69, which is the low benchmark for the week per mile. And coming out of Los Angeles shows an average per mile of $1.89 per mile. Moving on quickly over into the U.S. flatbed demand on the spot market for February the 18th through the 14th. Flatbed load availability increased 2.5%, and truck load capacity increased 8.2% last week. The load-to-truck ratio dipped from 11.7 to 11.1 loads per truck, a 5.4% decline. Flatbed demand dips 6.1% load volume dipped uh, for flatbeds in January compared to December, and the Capacity increased 18%, yielding a 21% decline in the load-to-truck ratio month over month. The ratio slid 27% compared to January of 2014, when extreme weather led to a typical demand for all equipment types. Moving on to flatbed rate. National flatbed rates failed $0.02 cents last week from $2.00. 14 cents to $2.12 per mile as the fuel surcharge remains changed. The national average rate for flatbeds fell 8 cents, 3.5%. That is that's a reflection of 3.5% in January to $2.21 per mile compared to January of 2014. However, flatbed rates rose 12 cents. That's a reflection of 5.7% per mile despite declining fuel surcharges. Checking in around the country, coming out of the Northeast, shows the high benchmark for flatbeds. Uh, Harrisburg checks in at $3.29 per mile on average. Atlanta checks in with a $2.41 per mile average. Rock Island shows $2.60 per mile. Houston, Texas checks in at $2.41 per mile. And Phoenix, Arizona rounds us out at uh, a whopping, wow, paltry $1.57 per mile on average for the spot market coming out of Phoenix, Arizona. And wrapping up the DAT trend lines for this week, we're going to jump over into the last and final segment, the U.S. reefer demand. And for reefer demands, um, for reefers gave back 11% last week and capacity added 8.9%, reversing the previous week's brief trend the resulting load-to-truck ratio declined 18% from 7.5 back to 6.2 reefer loads per truck. Reefer load availability declined 11% and capacity added 3.3% in January. Compared to December, the resulting load-to-truck ratio dipped 14% to 
to 9.1 compared to an extreme weather-driven demand of January 2014. The ratio declined 36%. Moving on to wrap up the U.S. reefer rates. The national average rate for reefers dropped another one cents per mile last week to $2.10 per mile as line haul rates continue to drift downward seasonally. Outbound rates rose from Green Bay, Wisconsin, and Miami, countering the national trend, 10 cents versus 2014. Reefer rates dropped 8 cents in January when compared to the December national average, but rose 18 cents compared to January of 2014. Wrapping, uh, doing a quick tour around the country, Elizabeth, New Jersey checks in at $2.09 per mile on average. Lakeland, Florida shows a $1.63 per mile per average. Green Bay, Wisconsin sets the high water mark at $2.77 per mile on average. Coming out of the Rio Grande, McAllen checking in at a flat $2 per mile. And Fresno, California checks in at $1.79 per mile on average. And that Ladies and gentlemen, wraps up the DAT trend lines for this week. And with no further ado, let me go and grab my co-host, Mr. Kenny Long. First, we're going to grab Kenny, and then we're going to grab Mr. Seaton. Kenny, are you there? I'm here, Rico. Thanks for having me. Cool, cool, cool. All right, Kenny, with no further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to bring on the man of the hour tonight, Mr. Hank Seaton, because we're going to be hanging with Hank all night tonight. Hank, are you there? I am here. Good deal, good deal. Well, um, Mr. Seaton, we uh, had a chance to talk briefly before the show. Uh, just want to give you an opportunity before we jump into anything uh, really hot and heavy. Uh, first things, I had a couple of questions. People want to know exactly how can they get a hold of your book, uh, Protect the Motor Carrier's Interest in Contracts. They want to get an actual hard copy or paperback of it. They, they kind of uh, don't like the, the, the downloaded version. They want to have one in their hands. So I'll let you get a chance yeah, to get I, out I and tell everybody that. how they can get that. If they'll go to our website, which is transportationlaw.net, that's transportationlaw.net, they can get the email address to just send a note uh, to my office saying that uh, you'd like someone to contact them about a hard copy of the book. And... Uh, I'll see that someone uh, contacts them and makes arrangements to get it mailed to them. Okay, we can take a credit card over the phone and we can mail mail them a copy. Good stuff. So that's Good all stuff, they folks. need to do. Bye. It's uh, uh, at transportationlaw.net. You can find an email address for the office, or uh, or if it comes to me, that's fine, and I'll I'll forward it and get it taken care of. Cool beans. Well, um, Kenny, uh, I know that you had, we talked a little earlier as well, and you had someone that has a little situation. I think we have them on the line. You want to you wanna kind of um, give us a little uh, primer into that before we bring them on? Sure. Um, basically, this is another lease purchase story gone wrong, only this is a little bit more uh, uh, smaller companies involved and uh, not so much uh, in writing kind of a situation, but that just makes it all the more complicated, I think, and this is where I think Mr. Seaton could help him out a lot. Uh, I get a lot of questions and comments, and I try to coach people on how to handle these situations myself, but this one's a little over my head, so I thought I told him to give you a call tonight. 
Okay, that'll be great. It'll be All right. And, what, and what, what was his name again, Kenny? Because I don't have a, I don't have a call. Uh, I'll right let now. him. I'll let him introduce himself on that one. Uh, his okay, uh, three one right. three one four. I Hello? got him. I got him on here. Call, call. Are you there? Uh, can you hear me? Yes, sir. We can hear you loud and clear. You're on with uh, Rico, uh, Kenny, right. and Hank. All right. How you guys doing this evening? Fine. Tell me about your situation. All right. Well, uh, kind of. It's a it's a it's a long situation. Basically, what happened was uh, I ran into someone who had someone else who was going to uh, basically purchase a, a truck, and I took a loan out at 50% interest, but it was actually taken out in another gentleman's name and not mine. And there was no contract written up. I drove the truck for a year. I paid the payments on it. I paid the insurance on it. I paid everything on it, but nothing was ever paid in my name. It was always paid through their name. So there's no proof that I made any payments on this vehicle. Now, an injector blew on it, and nobody wanted to fix it. So we parted ways, and I attempted to basically set up some kind of payment plan to get the rest of the $5,000 paid off so that the, the semi uh, I could actually own. And now, basically, everything's paid off, but I have no access to the semi, and currently they're actually looking for another driver. Well, do you have any proof of your payments? I do not because the I didn't get any statements from them, and I'm actually dealing with this as far as for tax reasons as well. I received no statements from them. Basically, the pay went directly to their com data card, and from that com data card, everything got broken up where it needed to go, whether it be for insurance, for payments. Now, the payments were made from their bank account. They weren't made from my bank account. They were made directly from their bank account to the lien holder. And once all that was done, that's when I received the remaining balance of whatever was left after fuel and everything dealing with the truck. That's when I received it on a separate account data card. Okay, so now you, I, were, you were leased back to them as an independent contractor, right? Correct. I was. I ran off of a 1099 as an independent contractor for them. That's correct. Okay, but you've got to be a whole lot more than running off of a 1099. You've got to have a qualifying independent contractor lease with them that's supposed to be itemized, and they're supposed to give you weekly settlements showing uh, you on percentage or mileage. I was on percentage, and there was the agreement was that they received 13%. Um, for me to use their authority. Basically, I ran off of their DOT number, I ran off of their, their name, and that was it. Um, I had no, I had nothing okay. as far as the settlement goes All or anything right. did you like have that. An, did you have an independent contractor lease with them? That uh, I did not. Had... There was no lease drawn up. All right. Uh, I gather they're, uh, they are a small, insubstantial company, maybe in Georgia. Is that right? That's correct. Where are they in Georgia? They're in Monroe, Georgia. Hmm, I don't know Monroe. Where is that in Georgia? It is um, just east of Atlanta. Okay. Yeah, it's about 80 miles outside of Atlanta. <laughs> uh, okay, look, um, uh, you have my... 
uh, Rico can give you back channel my my phone number or my email. Okay. My email okay. is H is in Henry, E is in Edward, S E A T O N at AOL. You have got a federal court cause of action against them for an accounting, and the accounting is supposed to show you on every load that you haul for them what they were paid. You've got a right to see all of their invoices, uh, and if you were on less 13%, they've got to make an accounting for your gross revenue, and then they're supposed to show all of the payments you made. Now, you say that you owe $5,000 on the truck. This is uh, what I was told. What I've been told is that I owe $5,000 on the truck. I owe $3,000 for two months of insurance after the truck was physically parked, plus I owe 200 for IFTA and 300 for something else. And that's all she could tell me at the current time. Well, the problem is not going to be proving your case. The problem is going to be getting money out of the jerks. But uh, in any event... Uh, uh, you know, we can, uh, I gather what, you're in Missouri, unfortunately, right? That's correct, yes, sir. Okay, that makes it a little bit tough for you to litigate a case in Georgia, doesn't it? Yes, sir, it does. Okay. Well, it, it'll be some tough sledding, but you've got plenty of rights. Uh, for the benefit of anybody else who's on the uh, on the phone, don't ever get involved in a lease-to-own deal unless you understand that you have certain rights that have to be in an independent contractor agreement. that Those rights, among other things, require you to have all of the documentation on a weekly basis of your settlement. If you're on percentage, you've got a right to see what was billed. You've got to have an itemized statement, and that itemized statement has to show what is withheld. And they can't withhold a damn dime from you unless it's specified in the contract and how the amount is calculated. So if this had been done right, you would have had a uh, lease-to-own agreement that said that if it was a $30,000 truck, you were going to pay $1,300 a month for 25 months, and then they were going to send over the title to you. And then the owner-operator agreement would have to expressly say in writing that they were allowed to deduct that $1,300 from your settlement. And the settlement okay. would have to show that deduction. And okay. if you had all of that documentation, life would be a whole lot easier. When you don't yes, have sir. it, you've got to sue them and make them prove it. And they'll play, we ain't got it, and then you'll get into a liar's contest over what the deal was. But uh, ultimately, okay. uh, you know, uh, we've got bad track record, but you've got plenty of rights uh, to assert. We'll see if we can make it happen. Yes, sir. Thank okay. you very much, and sure. I will be in contact. All right. I'll be fine. All right. You guys have a good evening. All right. Hey, All thank right. you. Bye. You too. I've got another right. little bit of a, a situation on that. Um, isn't it also a regulation that uh, an owner-operator is supposed to have that lease in the truck with him? Yes, the owner-operator is supposed to have the lease in the truck or a receipt for the equipment which says that it's being operated under lease from you to the carrier and that a copy of the original lease can be uh, examined at the home office of the carrier with the home office's address. So you don't necessarily have to have a 20-page lease in the truck, but you do have to have this receipt 
uh, and uh, a statement that it's being operated under lease and where the lease can be observed. Either one of the two things has to be in the truck. Okay. So basically his problem was he was dealing with a company that just didn't really know what they were doing, and they thought they'd handle it all on a, on a handshake, which they just never should have been able to legally do to begin with. I mean, a situation like this well, yeah, should be done they, on a they, handshake. Either they, either they didn't know what they're doing, or uh, they just simply took advantage of it. Now, you know, yeah. if, they were, if they were small and particularly untutored, that could be the case. But anybody who's on this phone that's ever been an owner-operator with a major company knows what we call them a 376 lease is because the 376 is the portion of the code that requires they be a lease. And the lease has got to have about 25 uh, different items in it, uh, including if they're holding out any money in escrow, they got to pay you T-bill interest, they got to settle with you every two weeks. Uh, if they're uh, paying you on a percentage, you've got a right to see the underlying uh, invoices to know that you're being paid the right amount. And there are lawsuits over this very issue. Uh, major companies are sued when they try to uh, uh, make money on the insurance they're selling the company or you know, saying that we're deducting for fuel and getting a rebate for it. Uh, Celadon has just been hit for a $2 million judgment because they were uh, not giving the full rebate to their uh, owner-operators. So, I mean, this stuff is a heavily litigated area, and, uh, you know, most people that have been under lease with a, a major company know what I'm talking about. So, That's you know, why, these um, people either very green or... Uh, very stupid or something. That's why, Hank, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your schedule to come on and answer these questions because a lot of people have uh, a lot of questions. And, and one of the problems in this industry is we just get a lot of bad advice from the lunch counter. You know, just, you know, a guy knew a guy and this is what happened. You know, and, and of course the story changes 20 different times before you actually get to the meat of the matter. So I, I just want to take my hat off and, and tell you that I really appreciate well, you coming on. Well, you know, I'm, I'm and, glad to do it. This light. is pretty much this is pretty much SOP though in terms of for the owner operator community and uh, you know, most guys pick up the fact that there is this uh this lease either by uh you know, reading about it in the in the trade pubs or if they're ever leased on to somebody having to having to sign one. We got another caller that's got a question real quick. I'm going to get them in real quick. Caller from the 813 area code. You're on live with Rico, Hank, and Kenny. Hello, caller. Are you there? Hello, caller. Are you there? Uh-oh. We lost somebody in South Carolina. We'll, we'll, we'll put them back on hold. We'll, we'll try and see if we can't come back and clear that line, see if we can get them. Um, Kenny, did you have a question? I got a question that uh, someone sent me on Facebook. Well, I, I did have something that, uh, Hank, you just touched on a second ago when you are going through that list of all the, about 25 provisions that need to be in this lease, and it's something that I've come across several times in the past few weeks. Uh, if you're leased to a carrier, the carrier is supposed to settle with you within 15 days. And I, right. I'm, I'm starting to see more and more leases where they're only charging 5 or 10% to 
run under their numbers, so they say, and they, they think they're running, you know, their own business, but they're running under their numbers, and then they're, they're getting paid when the carrier gets paid, and sometimes that's 30, 60, 90 days out, and in, I've had a couple of calls this week where they're looking for a new job because they can't get paid in time, and basically that comes down to another one of these small carriers that doesn't have the cash flow to pay them. I think well, that's a bad business model. There, there, you know, that is a, that like is a, that uh, that, that's a sham to start with. Uh, there are a, a couple of concepts that may be mixed in here. Uh, it used to be that, you know, if you had your own, well, it still is, if you've got your own authority uh, and your own insurance and your own name on the door, then you can... Uh, sign a dedicated contract with a property broker, and he can run you like crazy and pay you whenever you agree to be paid. Because uh, you know if you're running your own placards and you're doing your own thing, your customer or your broker may negotiate 30 or 60-day payment terms for you. But if you are an independent contractor and you're running under somebody else's authority, he has got to have total control over you for purposes of DOT compliance, for purposes of insurance, and the shipments have to be built by him. But one of the obligations that cannot be waived is this 15-day pay obligation. Now, when you say that somebody is charging 13% or 5% to run under their authority, you got to figure that is incredibly cheap. The yes, typical sir. situation is uh, somewhere I'd say between twenty and twenty-five or thirty percent. Uh, now that twenty to twenty-five percent is uh, usually of uh, uh, the, the base charge uh, without the fuel surcharge and without the accessorials. But the traditional owner operator is probably a 70 to 74% of baseline haul rate with pass-throughs for fuel and, and, and probably accessorials. So, you know, if some guy's just saying, hey, you go shag your own loads or we'll find loads for you and we'll charge you 10%, uh, that's pretty cheap because, uh, you know, the insurance is probably costing him, uh, you know, four to seven. So uh, you got to kind of wonder, you know. Right, and I, I'm hearing more and more people. I, I do this show on Tuesday, Trucking with Authority, and I try to help people get into the business and have their own authority, run under their own numbers, but then they start telling me they want to hire all these owner-operators to run under them, but if they just get started, typically they just don't have the cash flow to be able to pay in, in a week or two, and so, of course, they want to start factoring, and then uh, automatically they start, racking up all these bills because they don't know what the numbers are when they're just getting started and they think somehow they can do it just charging five or ten percent and that's the red flag for me whenever they say i'm running and this guy's letting me use his numbers for ten percent automatically i know and a lot of times it's just like that car we had that there's no contract they don't really know what they're doing and they're just taking on a lot of risk and liability on both sides so uh, well, yeah, and there is a there is a scam that goes on, and it is a, really a despicable one. But what happens is a guy will go out and get authority, 
and file evidence of insurance, which is a BMC 91X, but he'll actually only insure one truck. And then he'll go out and get five or six owner-operators, and he may, in the contract with the owner-operator, tell the owner-operator, you got to get your own insurance. But chances are it doesn't do a very good job of checking to see if that owner-operator has his own insurance. Now, if the owner-operator hits a school bus, things happen because the insurance company that covered the motor carrier didn't insure the vehicle that had the wreck. And they probably get real upset if they have to pay for the, uh, the victims. They'll turn around and try to get it back out of the hide of the two-truck Charlie that insured the truck. Uh, meanwhile, the, uh, the, the carrier will say, well, Mr. Owner-Operator, you agree that you were going to have the liability insurance and you didn't, so they'll come after this guy that was on the phone and say, well, our deal was I thought you had the insurance. And he says, no, I thought you did. Well, meanwhile, he was riding down the road uninsured. Wow. So, I mean, it really is a bad deal. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, my more sophisticated clients are getting to the position in which when they broker a load to a company, they require the company not just to say they've got insurance and give them a BMC 91X, but also prove that they've got what's called hired not owned coverage. Because so many small carriers can only buy insurance on an insured vehicle unit, which means that the insurance company will walk away from a claim if it didn't, uh, a cargo claim if it didn't occur on the right unit. Well, you can see what kind of hash that makes out of life. Uh, if, you know, you're uh, a small company and you go out and buy it, insurance to insure a 92 Mac and you have an independent contractor uh, working for you that's got a 2010 Volvo and that Volvo is the one that's involved in the wreck and now you've got a $100,000 cargo claim but no insurance. Oh, I mean, there, are, there are real gaps here that can catch the unsophisticated and uh, I, I think as the, as the market hardens and it gets to be a bigger hassle to get insurance, this idea of, oh, well, I'm running under somebody else's authority becomes a, a quick but uh, very unsophisticated answer for what's a problem going somewhere to happen. So, uh, you know, I, I hate to sound like the sky's falling, but if anybody on this call it, uh, wants to become an independent contractor, it's particularly important that you sign on with some carrier who is... Uh, is reputable, who has a, a good reputation, and you need to uh, be sure you sign something, but then pay very close attention to what you sign, because you you can uh, uh, sign on for more obligations than you can afford to uh, uh, to assume. So if you get handed and a fifteen-page contract, sure. you need to understand what's in it. I'm pretty sure that you can tell us plenty of bad lawyer jokes there, Hank, but, uh, you know, everybody kind of hates a lawyer until they, until they need one. And this is one of those things where if you're going to be in business, uh, you know, this is just kind of where I, I err on things. If you're going to be in business, you owe it to yourself to protect your business if, you're gonna, if you intend on being in business in any amount of time. And getting legal counsel just seems like good due diligence on, you know, 
but a lot of people just, you know, just, just forget it and wing it, you know, um, kind of yeah, going back well, to the there's a, there's a real thing. difference, uh, between being an employee driver and being an independent contractor. If you're an employee driver, the, uh, there are all kinds of workman's compensation laws. There are all kinds of payment laws that are there to protect you, and it's uh, just a handshake that says you're going to be paid so much a month and you're going to get overtime, and that's all there is. But if you're an independent contractor, you're forming a business relationship with a business partner, and you're pretty much bound by what you sign, and whatever rights you've got are in this truth in leasing bill I'm talking about, and it just says that they've got to be candid and upfront in terms of telling you how they're getting into your pocket, and there can't be anything that's not in writing. That's not to say that what they put in writing is necessarily something that's a good deal for you. So when you get that lease, you've got to read it and understand it or uh, uh, know pretty doggone well that it's the same lease that uh, your brother-in-law signed, and he's... uh, Ridden, he's driven with them for twenty years and been very happy. I got a question that came in on Facebook that I that, that I want to get out. Um, a gentleman sent me a question that was asking asking about uh, MC authority to broker truckloads. Uh, he's on the application. There's a question that says contracting shippers have one or more of the distinct needs delineated in Interstate Van Lines Inc. extensions, household goods five one. 5 ICC 2D-168-1988. And he wants to know, can can anyone break that? Can anybody describe briefly what those distinct needs are on that on the application for brokering? You mean this is, uh, this is not an FMCSA application. Where did this, what kind of application are you talking about? I, I was on the assumption that it was a, a, um, a FMCSA broker uh, application I, because I don't. Uh, I'm a, an, I am an agent for a broker. I'm not an actual. I don't actually have the brokering authority. I'm just an agent, so I've never actually filled out the uh, paperwork to do. Okay, well here's what here's it. what I'm saying. There are some brokers who have old art and shippers who have very very old contracts that are still lying around from pre-1990 and way back in the 80s in order to be a contract carrier you had to either dedicate your equipment to the exclusive use of the shipper or broker or say that you were somehow meeting his distinct needs for service and the reason for that was because there were two kinds of carriers there were common carriers who could serve anybody, and there were contract carriers who only could be niche players. And those contract carriers had to meet one of those two distinct requirements. What you just mentioned to me is the alternative requirement, and you used to see that in old contracts that justified the fact that the contract carrier could provide service to the broker or shipper. But that language hasn't had any relevance in 25 years. Okay. Uh, Wherever that came from, uh, uh, you know, I'm telling you, if I saw that contract, I'd just strike it out and say, this is overtaken by events. You don't have to do it. I still see contracts occasionally that will say, whereas shipper has the distinct need for on-time deliveries and after-hours pickups and 
stuff such as that, and that's in a whereas clause. And the only reason it's hanging around is to somehow justify the fact that they're not using roadway, but they don't have to justify that. We're getting about to the halfway point of it. We're actually a little bit past the halfway point in the show hang, and I know that you had something that you wanted to, uh, a question that you wanted to throw out to the audience. And just a reminder to a lot of, we got a ton of callers on the line tonight, and yeah. we're at that halfway point. If you got a question, press number one to get in to get your question in, Hank. Go ahead, Hank. I'm sorry. Sure, sure. Uh, this next week, comments are due to the agency in uh, a question-and-answer format, and there are a couple of questions that are, are really important. Uh, one is they're talking about raising the m uh, minimum amount of insurance that a motor carrier has to have. Uh, now it's 750 but most all of us have a million. But they're talking about raising it from a million to two million or no telling how high. The people that are advocating that it be raised are the big carriers who have multi-million dollars worth of insurance anyway, and they want to level the playing field by making uh, everybody have, oh, let's say two million. And the comments that I'm making are on behalf of small carriers, and it really is to say that, hey, a million is enough. But one of the questions that the agency is asking is, what are carriers currently paying for insurance, and what will be the effect if we raise the amount? And I've got the feeling that uh, small carriers and owner-operators are sometimes paying at least two, maybe two and a half times as much as large carriers are. So I'm just kind of interested in taking... Uh, the temperature of what people on this line are paying for uh, their auto liability insurance if they're, in fact, buying it rather than relying on the people they're leased to. So, you know, if there's some way to, to run a little poll or uh, if in the rest of this conversation people that answer will say, yeah, I'm buying my own insurance and I'm paying $6,500 for $750,000. I'd love to know that. Okay. Well, uh, I can't, I don't know what the exact breakdown is on my, uh, on my policy. Um, I don't remember the exact breakdown. I know that for two trucks and two trailers, my, uh, total is right in that $13,000 ballpark for the year. Wow. Okay, now you think that that includes FISDAM as well as auto liability? It does. It does. It, 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 that's that's my total. That's my total bill. I, I don't have. I don't know what the breakdown is. Uh, if I was at home, I could mm -hmm. give that to you. But I I just remember what the uh, ball bought the ballpark with the uh, total for for uh, my total insurance. Okay, well, was. Uh, Rico, when you get home, you got my email. Uh, just look, you know, it'll probably be so much per unit per year for uh, right. uh, BINPD or auto liability. If you're paying 13 you know, I imagine you're getting it for 5 or 6 because the rest of it ought to run in the rest of it. But uh, I'd, I'd love to know. Uh, I'm hearing stories about uh, guys that are just starting out getting, uh, getting ripped off for, for more than that. Well, I know... Uh I just recently started with a high risk. I, my wife, Elizabeth, just got her license. She's just crossed that two-year threshold where the insurance companies are actually giving us some breathing room now. But uh, 
we're upwards of 12000 for one truck just for the physical liability, auto liability. Uh, and that should go down only approximately $3,000 when I get to renew this, this coming April. Uh, so ours is extremely high based out of the state of Florida. And what I'm seeing state to state, the variations, the, the swing is so wide just based on what state you're out of that it's, it's hard to even predict. That's one of the questions I get all the time is how, how much do they budget for insurance? And there's no way to tell because I've seen quotes from, you know, cargo and liability combined from as low as uh, 7000 all the way up to 21000 And it can vary on, you know, just from your uh, MVR, your records, and your experience, you know, just to being new. And then the biggest factor seems to be what state you're in. So it's a pretty hard, uh, hard question to answer, really. Well, you've entered a you've you've uh, run a different issue, which is the state by state, because it's kind of Ouija board stuff. I think the agency thinks that it's like a, buying a Hershey bar; it's the same cost regardless of where you buy it or who buys it, uh, and that's not it. They'd like to say that. Uh, the, the the premium is uh, driving record specific. In other words, if you're paying twenty one thousand, it's because you're a real bad actor and had three wrecks. But I don't really think that's the case. I think that uh, uh, it's uh, it's much it's a much uh, more random system than that. Uh, your information how, is, how, is how really soon, good. How soon? Go ahead, like, how soon do you need this information back, Hank? Well, you know, I'd love to get it by. I'd love to get it by this weekend. Uh, you know, to the extent that you're paying twelve grand, do you think that's for auto liability only, or is that your total premium including put in dam and? Uh, that that, that, that's, my, that's my total premium included. That, that's everything: physical damage, cargo, the whole nine, the whole ball of wax. But what I was what I was going to suggest is I don't know if we might get a, a much participation tonight, but we have several different groups on Facebook with specifically a bunch of uh, owner-operators that we might be able, between Kenny and myself, we might be able to uh, get a poll up in these groups, and we have uh, probably an excess uh, access to maybe 10,000 different uh, drivers. I don't know if all of those guys will be uh, owner-operators with their own authority, but uh, well, I'm pretty I sure we can probably try to this. get you some good if numbers. You can get, if you can get a random poll of what independent contractors who are buying their own uh, uh, BI and PD. I really don't care about anything else other than auto liability. You know, just say for excuse me for seven hundred and fifty thousand per year. I'm paying X. I'd love to have a random poll, even if it turns out that you know fifteen people, uh, you know, uh, uh, on a Facebook poll said that the independent contractors are paying whatever you're paying. Uh, because ultimately, guys. This is a small business issue, and uh, right. you know there are there are people. Uh, we're doing some work on the hill trying to protect small business interests. But uh, if uh, they make it more difficult for you to get in business and to get insurance, it's only going to uh, you know frustrate what is. I still think uh, one way that a guy can get in business and and and, uh, and you know protect something. So, uh, Rico, if if you and your compadres can can get something to me, 
my filings due next Tuesday. Uh, I'll be happy to put in any kind of summary you've got uh, because I think we need to dispel the myth that it's only going to cost uh, $1,000 for an additional uh, million dollars worth of coverage per unit. Uh, people are saying that sometimes it's 25% of your base premium, and if your base premium is ten grand, it's at least going to be 2500 bucks. That's an additional 200 bucks a month. Right, right. Yeah, I think I, I think we could probably make that happen. Uh, get a poll up in, in some of these groups that we uh that we interact in and try to get some information back to you because that is definitely a rates and lanes issue as well because if that goes up then of course that's going to have a trickle down effect and you're going to have to as an independent you're going to have to raise your rates to try to help offset that if you can and um and it's kind of been really tough sledding trying to get any kind of increase in rates here lately with uh with the fuel dropping and plummeting in price and uh and a lot of people are just that they're they're cutting um they're cutting the rates down pretty pretty hard on the spot market at least right now yeah well, it all it all goes into the mix, and if ultimately the increase in rates means that it only increases the spread between what the fleets can can buy two million for and what you can buy two million for, that makes you that much least competitive, you know. Right, right, and, and Kenny, I, my co-host Kenny. Uh, I wanted to get him on tonight to get give, give him an opportunity. He, he does another show that's, uh, like he said earlier, he, you know, it's surrounded about trying to get people into the business. And I know that he's, um, he's had a, a, quite a few people that had some legal questions and stuff. And I wanted to give him an opportunity to get on here and ask any questions that he may have had a, accumulated over the time period that he's been doing his show. Uh, Kenny, do you have any more questions that you want to get out there to Hank to try to get some uh, clarity on? Oh, I've got a list of them, but I'll just try to hit on some of the big ones. Um, one of them kind of goes back to what you started the show with about what do you do when you get to a shipper as far as putting stuff in storage and that kind of thing. Um, in a situation, and it, inevitably this will not be uh, pre-negotiated as far as what your terms would be for layover, detention, or storage, and... Of course, ever since deregulation, nobody publishes, or very few, publish tariffs or anything like that anymore. Is it a good idea, or does it even is it a waste of time to go ahead and publish tariffs or a rule circular so that in the case that, that you run into a situation where there's nothing pre-negotiated, that at least you have something to fall back on? Well, uh, you know, that's covered in the book we're talking about. Uh, it's, it's hard for a small guy to incorporate it into reference in the contract you sign that says it's got an integration clause that says that's all that there is. But, you know, I recommend to every motor carrier that they have service terms and conditions and that uh, they have that to fall back on if they do get abused, uh, uh, you know, particularly with, uh, you know, a truck ordered not used, didn't contemplate that, uh, you know, you you have an open window to deliver. You get there during ordinary business hours. It's Friday afternoon in, in, in Philly, and they went home early. Uh, you know, it pays when you call the broker and say, look, I'm here. Uh, they've closed. You owe me money. He says, we have no agreement. You say, well, look, I published detention uh, rates. Uh, my rate is, uh, you know, $50 an hour and overnight layover is this. You need to uh, 
get me unloaded or I'm going to put this in a warehouse and assert my lien rights, the fact that you have got that document uh, gets you pretty far down the road towards uh, uh, being able to have some rights to assert because at least, uh, you know, you can say, well, you didn't ask, but I've got them. Uh, and I, I think it's it's important uh, to do it. Uh, clearly, it's of more importance in some industries than others. I do a fair amount in the intermodal industry, and that stuff is usual. Got a load, here's a load, here's what we pay, and there's no signed contract. At those points, having service terms and conditions becomes very important, particularly when uh, you start getting steamship demurrage and things like that. You've now got rules tariffs so that you can push it on down the, the road to the shipper who actually incurred the delay. So, yes, I recommend that, you know, uh, you have those schedules. Uh, it's hard to uh, sell a guy who's uh, just getting started on the idea that he needs it. But, uh, uh, you know, I have seen them uh, certainly uh, pay off repeatedly. Uh, you know, I think it's also particularly important in a contract that you be very careful to limit your cargo liability to the amount of insurance that you've got. Seen far too many little people get, uh, you know, a two hundred thousand dollar cargo claim, and they've only got a hundred thousand dollars worth of insurance. So those kinds of things are things you need to look at uh, when you're going into it. And uh, you know, Kenny, if you're doing a show helping little guys get started, you know, we probably need to talk because uh, there's a whole lot of stuff they need to they need to understand before they get too far down the road. Absolutely, and this is the kind of stuff that I, I try to get out to them, and it's good to have you to to give me a little, uh, you know, authority yeah, behind my there's another there, thing. So. There's another thing that I'll mention to those that are on the line that are motor carriers, and Kenny, this will be important for you, too. In October, the agency is coming down with what they call the new URS, Uniform Registration System, and the application that we've used for years, the OP1 that uh, you can fill out online, is going to be replaced by an all-purpose 25 to 30-page application. And it's going to become a whole lot more difficult to understand it and fill it out. It's going to have to be completed biannually. And any time you need to communicate with the FMCSA, you're going to have to find the right section on that form to update it. So uh, there's going to be more red tape in our future. And right, and I've touched on that. I know they're, part of that is they're doing away with the MC numbers. It'll just be falling back under the USDOT number, right? That, uh, is, that? that is our understanding. But, you know, that is the dumbest, that is the dumbest move that any mortal ever made uh, because you will not be able to tell whether or not, I guess they're going to have to sign all new DOT numbers because somehow you're going to have to determine the difference between a broker and a carrier. I've always said right. that, you know, the best idea is for a guy to have his brokerage in one company and his carrier authority in another, but they're going to have to have distinguishing identifiers. I've always thought that to have an FF number told everybody you were a freight forwarder, and that made some good sense to just have uh 700,000 MC numbers out there uh, doesn't help anybody very easily identify who or what you are. 
Right, and I know there's uh, some other situations, uh, carriers that are doing interstate commerce under, you know, in a, in a cargo van that are under 10,000 pounds, they only have an MC number. They don't even have a U.S. DOT number, and I guess under the new rules, they'll actually have to get DOT numbers. So everybody will just have a DOT number, and there'll be no way to distinguish exactly what you do. And then, of course, if everybody's got a DOT number, do you all fall under the same regulations? Uh, as as well, yeah, I mean, you, you're very quickly getting into, and uh, get, get my number from Rico, let's talk back channel, because you very quickly get into the chaos that's happening. Add to the fact that in the past, uh, they have had uh, about a quarter of a million carriers out here that were private or exempt carriers that they're now all going to have to trace insurance and agents for, and the fact that you're going to have to reassign numbers to everybody who is both a broker and a carrier, uh, and then add to that that they've decided to outsource that process so that the people who've been doing it for years won't be doing it in October, and you're going to have a train wreck involving trucks. Wow. Yeah, it's just more complicated government mess, it sounds like. Rico, how much time have we got left? I don't know if you've got anything else. I've got a few more questions. Go, go ahead and get them in, Kenny. I, that's, that's the purpose I, I wanted to get you on tonight. Uh, we got about six minutes left. Okay. Uh, well, I have a couple of quick ones. I know um, with the CSA scores, and if you get a warning that affects your CSA score, but have they come up with a way to fight that yet? Uh, to my knowledge, there is no way to fight a warning. You know, the warnings have been particularly bad in uh, five states, Indiana and those places, and Indiana's tried to do something to uh, to reduce the problem. Uh, I don't think there's any answer to that. Uh, you'd really, in six minutes, you don't want to get me started on CSA. Uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's my argument, and I think you, uh, I've, I've written a new article called Rigged to Fail. I think SMS methodology is rigged to fail because uh, the government even acknowledges now that they don't have sufficient data to rank 90% of the carriers. Yet they say, well, we're going to have to rank them anyway because we haven't got anything else to do. And then they have decided that they cannot determine preventability of accidents. So if three-quarters of the accidents that we're involved in are caused by the three-wheelers, the four-wheelers, all we have to do is be rear-ended twice and have less than 10 trucks, and we're automatically branded as having too many wrecks to have a satisfactory safety rating. So that's the combination of the law of large numbers and the error factor that they've got built into the system. So I, I think it's rigged to fail, particularly if you're a small carrier. And most people in the industry are recognizing that, except the bureaucrats, and they still don't seem to get it. Uh, as a result, there are efforts on the Hill to try to get Congress to do something about it, but, uh, you know, don't hold your breath. So it, it continues to be a, 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 a real problem, particularly small carriers, have to have to watch their numbers. Uh, I think the fortunate thing is uh, shippers are not looking at it nearly as uh, 
uh, as harshly as they used to because most shippers and brokers now realize how truly flawed the system is. Yeah, and that kind of spins off to one last question here. Um, I've got a bunch more, but maybe i wrap it up with this. Uh, people that are applying for their authority and they fill out the MCS 150 now, where it asks for mileage and number of trucks, uh, I'm starting to see people are putting, they're exaggerating their mileage or putting more trucks than they have, that type of thing, so that it, you know, it's falsifying the document, of course, but it may, they feel that it makes them appear bigger than they are. Uh, they're afraid that if they don't show enough miles, it might make them look like a local carrier and the brokers might not want to work with them, that type of thing. Is there any penalties and fines for doing something like that? And if so, what should they do about it? To my knowledge, there are no penalties and fines. I'm sure that there's somewhere like on the MC, uh, the OP1, the statement you're making under penalty of perjury, there's no uh, statement on an MCS 150 that says you're making those statements under penalty of perjury. Uh, the, of course, the great disconnect about the uh, OP, uh, the MC1, uh, OP150, is that it allows you to uh, count uh, trip leasers and everybody else. So people have always been able to jimmy around uh, with the number of trucks. I think it's a fraud. I don't recommend anybody do it. But also, if you've got one truck in a dream, uh, you don't have any mileage. All you can do is put an estimated mileage. Uh, what they think is they think that uh, in one of the basics, which is unsafe driving, that uh, if uh, since it's based on number of uh, number of trucks, if they put more trucks, they'll have uh, lower scores uh, 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 based upon the number of speed warnings and stops they get. But uh, what you mentioned is something that goes on, and uh, there are people who have figured out that in that basic, you can add or subtract a truck and get over or under the the 80,000-mile barrier and flip your scores as much as 10 or 15%. Uh, one of the things that that, uh, uh, is, that is going to happen, though, is uh, when they do come out with the ultimate safety fitness determination, the scores will be based upon raw scores, not percentile groups. So uh, some of the benefits of playing those games may go away. But, Kenny, uh, yeah, I know that goes on. Uh, I have. Uh, I'm working with some uh, some groups that are trying to catch that fraud because what you'll see particularly happen is a guy will go to a call board and say that he's got a fleet of 50 trucks, and then you'll go to his MCS 150 and find out he reports two. So they're they're right. they're not exactly candid in terms of what they tell the shipper is their delivery capacity. I'm involved in a lawsuit now uh, in which uh, a totally uncredible uh, carrier uh, signed a contract to provide exclusive service to a Tier 2 uh, auto manufacturer and uh, uh, had only one truck, yet somehow managed to uh, uh, double broker thousands of loads and escape with the money. And... Uh, 
the shipper uh, uh, all this time wakes up and claims he didn't know what was going on, but we've got all the tally sheets that show that the, the trucks that were being loaded and unloaded were being unloaded by subcontractors. So that kind of scam is going on, notwithstanding MAP-21 and everybody else's best interest. It probably will only end when the shippers wake up and start insisting that the name on the door match the name on the shipping documents, or they know why. Right. Wow. That's, wow. <laughs> that's, but that's one of the things that I've been, when I was trained in doing brokering, it was one of the things that we were told that we, uh, to our customers, we try to try to protect ourselves and also protect the uh, to protect the customer as well. Is we call them ahead of time once we book that truck, we notify them of what the trucking company number, the trucking company is, the name the name of the trucking company, the number of the truck, and the number of the trailer that that's coming to pick that load up, and that they need to verify that uh, when the truck arrives there. Uh, uh, you know, that's kind of one of the steps that we try to do to to help prevent any kind of uh, loads being stolen um, as, as a Absolutely. As part, of, that part is, of our brokering. That is, that is just standard SOP, but I can't tell you how many, uh, how many dumb shippers there are. <laughs> and then answer the question for everybody that wants to know, everybody that wants to know why is the, why does that broker want to know my truck number before I even get there? And that, that right there answers that question. So, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. and I mean, you know, at least, at least, uh, uh, you know, you got to ask yourself, you know, don't you know this thing? If you're a carrier, don't you know this thing's being double brokered? If you go in and pick up a bill of lading and it says the carrier's J.B. Hunt, and you got to, and you got the load from Two Truck Charlie's brokerage, don't you know that something yeah, just doesn't quite smell right here? And that's another thing that I try to warn people about stuff that you go over clearly in the book. So I try to tell everybody, please get the book, but you want to make sure that you are the carrier of record on all of your bill of lading um, just to kind of help protect yourself. Oh, I can't recommend that book uh, enough either. I recommend it on my show all the time as well, especially when I get start getting questions about contracts and reading the fine print. And I had a, like I said, I had a list of questions here. I could go on and on, but, uh, but there's one thing more on the brokers and the contracts and everything is to read that fine print and get that that book from uh, TransportationLaw.net, and it lists all of the key points that you really need to watch for in that in those broker agreements. I I can't express enough how important that is. And, uh, Mr. Seaton, thank you so much for making that available for us. Sure. Glad to do it. So, yeah, when we, 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 we're a little bit in the overtime, Hank. I just wanted to give you um, – we still got a, quite a few people that was on the line. That, that no one raised a hand yet. But I know that a lot of people, they just enjoy listening to and, and gaining the knowledge of, of what you're uh, helping disseminate out there. How are you coming along with this uh, with, with the other book? I know that you were working on another book as well. How, oh how man, I wish I could say I was making any progress, but I am at this point so bogged down. Uh, uh, you know, we got a snowstorm here in Tennessee for the first time in four years, and don't make any difference to me. I'm just bogged down. Uh, I'd like <laughs> to say that uh, I'd like to say that I've made progress over the past month, but I'm not sure I have. Uh, I think I'm just going to have to button it up and take it to the printer the way it is, but uh, uh, it's probably double the content that I had before. 
this next month's got me got me traveling a bit, but uh, hold me accountable. It's uh, it'll come. Good stuff. Well, the squeaky wheel gets to all. Well, Mr. Seaton, as always, we definitely appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come on here on the Racing Lanes podcast to share and, and get some good information out to everyone. We definitely appreciate it. Um, want to give you uh, kudos and thanks. And we want to thank everyone else that helped make this show possible. Thanks to my co-host, Mr. Kenny Long. Thanks to Kevin Rutherford, Lisa Rutherford, for providing us the platform to bring this show to you guys. And the entire Less Truck team, this is Rico Muhammad uh, signing out live from Chadburn, North Carolina. Thank you, everyone. God bless you, and good night. Thanks for joining us on Rates and Lanes. If you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review on iTunes or listen to our other shows at audioroad.letstruck.com. To get in touch with our tribe, call us at 855-800-PUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Thanks for joining us for the ride down the audio road.